Hi, everyone. Um, we are back where it all started, here at the alumni gathering of Sinai and Synapses, the first one we have had in quite a long time. I think it's been four years. Four years. Face to face. Four yeah. years since we've been face to face. Wow. Um, hi. 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 Hello. <laughs> and uh, we're going to take some time over the next couple of days to talk with some people, um, some other Sinai and Synapse alum who are doing presentations for other sessions. And so we're going to get one-on-one -on -one with some of these presenters. Um, and our first one today, super excited about, uh, somebody who has been a guest on the podcast before, who has talked about uh, our, our last conversation had mostly to do with um, AI in healthcare, which was one of, honestly, one of the most fascinating interviews that we have done so far. I learned so much and um, was frightened in ways I didn't know I could be um, about the potential for abuse in the system. But you're going to clear all that up for us today, correct? You're going to make us all feel better <laughs> about the future of AI and no ethics and all of that. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> so uh, we are here with Mohammed Ahmed, and welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, one of the things that we were saying before we started recording was that uh, your actual presentation that you're going to give later is on um, AI and Islam, which it strikes me are two topics that I don't know nearly enough about to be able to have really intelligent questions about. So maybe you can just kind of give us a little bit of a primer um, to help those of us with all of our unknown unknowns uh, to know kind of what we're doing, what we're dealing with. Sure, that sounds great. Uh, so the first question that comes to mind is, even before we talk about Islam and AI, is what does religion have to do with AI? Uh, so for me, uh, religion is part of a person's identity, their daily practices, and AI is a technology which always been around for almost uh, 70 years. It's only in the last few months that it has become, let's say, the talk of the town for the average person on the street. Uh, so it's something which is already affecting the lives of it, or hundreds of millions of people, if not billions of people. And uh, in the future, it's going to be integrated in each and every aspect of our lives, including religion. So specifically from, then the next question is, well, what does Islam have to do with AI? Uh, so Muslims are the second largest religious group in the world. Um, and so what they think about artificial intelligence, uh, so that's going to have impact on, uh, let's say, their, their lives on a daily basis and also the globe in general. And also the proliferation of AI and decision-making uh, raises a number of moral and ethical dilemmas. And religious traditions, and Islam being one of them, have been thinking about moral issues for literally for hundreds of years. They also provide us frameworks. And even when they have not lived up to those standards, at least there's a framework that they have provided us. <clears throat> and then lastly, even more fundamental questions that AI raises, like what does it mean to be human? Should we give personhood to these systems? Although it may seem that these are uh, very modern questions, uh, surprisingly, uh, religious traditions, including Islam, they have also talk talked about these questions for hundreds of years. And I think uh, wisdom traditions and religious traditions, they can offer us useful insights uh, with respect to how we think about these systems. How, how has Islam talked about something like AI? in the past? Because clearly, beyond 70 years ago, we weren't talking about AI. But where do you, where are you seeing the connected wisdom traditions? All right. Uh, so if we conceive AI as, let's say, a system of mechanical reasoning, then uh, it is something which is very recent. But if you think about how religious traditions, including Islam, had talked thought about non-human intelligence, then if you make that connection, then that opens up a lot of vistas for us. So in the Islamic uh, story of creation, just, just like the Judeo-Christian uh, story, uh, so, so God created Adam and Eve in the beginning. But one difference, I would say, in the Islamic version of the creation story is that they were creatures uh, 
intelligent creatures besides the angels who existed uh, before Adam, before humans. So, for example, the story of jinns. So, jinn, for those of those in the audience who may not be familiar, so <clears throat> in the Islamic tradition, uh, jinns are these creatures, uh, intelligent creatures who are made up of smokeless fire. Um, so, one can even conceive them as, let's say, existing in a parallel world uh, to us. They can interact with our world, but it's not we cannot interact with their world, just like the angels. And the people in the Islamic as well as Christian and Jewish tradition, they've all talked about angels as being more synonymous with automatons. Uh, so their capacity to think independently is limited, but that's not the truth with jinns. And in certain Islamic traditions, even beyond jinns, there's discussions of other um, non-human creatures, uh, like they're, some of them are called hens, for example. So Islam, just like Judaism, is a more law-centric religion as compared to, uh, let's say, Christianity. And throughout the centuries, we find some really interesting discussions. So Muslim jurists in the medieval era, they talked about cross-species relationships. So let's say if a human wants to have relationships with a jinn, let's say wants to get married. So they have talked about the let's, what, what are the legal ramifications of that. So regardless of whether you believe in the existence of these creatures or not, but that does offer an interesting way, a precedent for us to think about non-human intelligences. Hmm. Another thing is that in many of these uh, faith traditions, uh, so the dominant uh, way of thinking is that uh, you know humans are the pinnacle of creation because we can think, we can reflect on the world. Uh, and... Uh, so th that's also a school of thought uh, in the Islamic tradition also, but uh, some s Muslim scholars have pointed out that there's actually a verse in the Quran which says that, uh, and I'm summarizing, so not exact words, but that God has uh, given dominion or precedence to humans over most creatures. Mm. So these scholars point out that it says most, it does not say all All. So in the context of non-human intelligences or even, let's say, extraterrestrial life, that's where people have speculated that that's what it is talking about. It opens up the possibility. On the mechanical side of thinking about these things, um, so in the medieval era, just like the West, um, so there's a long tradition of uh, um, creating automata, even for religious purposes, um, so a few years ago in Berlin, there was an exhibition called Allah's Automaton. It's a center around uh, the history of uh, creating automatons uh, in the Islamic world. Um, and so there were some, as an example, so they were, so Muslims have to pray five times a day. And before that, you have to cleanse yourself using water. And there were automatons which were specifically for that purpose. They were automatons which in Tunisia in the 10th century, specifically for the purpose of storytelling. Uh, in the in the adjacent, in the Christian tradition, uh, there's also, uh, there's, uh, there's also a parallel uh, development. Uh, people even talk about robot saints. Uh, robot, not in the sense that we conceive them, but in terms of automatons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what does a 10th century automaton look like? <clears throat> um, so what is really interesting is that so when we in the context of automatons so the some of the earliest uh, automatons come from the from ancient Greece uh, specifically from Alexandria uh, so the earliest programmable automaton that is you can give it instructions and if you let's say if you mind it next time it will behave differently it actually comes from the 10th century by an Arab uh, Muslim scholar Al Jazeera. Um, and so the purpose of these automatons was to, let's say, uh, demonstrate certain uh, mechanical principles, uh, use it for pedagogical uh, purposes. Um, so if we look at, uh, let's say, uh, books of automaton from that era, then we have examples of mechanical clocks, for example. Uh, we have examples where uh, you have an automaton where uh, you wind it and let's say the so the the sultan of egypt for example had this where um, you wind it and then after that it 
because the, the person is doing ablution before prayer. So it picks up water, and the sultan has to um, clean his hands, then it'll help him doing the, do that, cleaning his feet, so on and so forth. Hmm. So a wind-up cleaner uh, water dispenser. That, that of, sounds about right. That, that's a much more crude way of describing yeah. <laughs> what, what, what sounds masterful. When, when you talk about uh, automatons or, or robots that are being or, or robots, uh, I guess not all automatons. Are all automatons robots? Are robots all automatons? Which comes first, the automaton or the robot? I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's an irrelevant question. Cause <laughs> no, I think it actually is. Like the idea of the automaton, you said, is this from like some of the earlier writings? This is from the earlier writings. So yeah. when we conceive automatons, we usually think of uh, a mechanical system with a preset uh, instructions. It's mechanical in nature versus robots being more electronic in nature. Okay. So there's also yeah. the, okay. that distinction. Yeah. That makes sense. Because my question is really, and, and whether this is about automatons or robots, the act of uh, like across religious traditions, making these objects to fulfill some kind of religious ritual or practice or to supplement some kind of religious ritual or practice. I'm curious, like, how how does the Islamic tradition think about um, authenticity in religious experience? Because I know that, you know, across like the, the variety of um, religious robots in, you know, Christianity, Buddhism and Islam, like this question of what does it mean to authentically participate in a ritual or to authentically have a religious experience? Uh, like that's a really complicated question. But yeah, like is that is that a question people are interested in? Like what do you what would you say the answer? Would right. Be? So I would say the closest that I can think of in the contemporary era is people using large language models like Chad GP to generate sermons. Um, and if, if were you hu uh, humming at me, <laughs> no. sir? Uh, no, no. ChatGPT is awful at sermons. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's not even I'm a not temptation. I'm not saying you use it to make your sermons. I just know you play with that thing quite a bit. I do. So, yeah. <laughs> Go. Sorry. On. Carry on. <laughs> so what is? Uh, so my experience is that uh, so for certain topics it can be quite good, and you can make it quote unquote more real by feeding it examples. So let's take Zach's example. So let's say Zach has given 100 sermons last year. So we can take those 100 sermons, feed it to a model like ChatGPT, and ask it to write uh, a sermon about ChatGPT in the style of uh, Zachary Jackson. And more often than not, it'll do a decent job, if not a great job. Uh, so that's where uh, so some of the discussions which are going on um, in this context is that uh, uh, what if the model actually makes up stuff and these large language models, they do have a habit to, of making up stuff. So researchers use the term hallucination, so it hallucinates. Uh, so as an example, uh, so recently I actually helped a friend in a, who was actually a rabbi um, to write a sermon. Um, using his um, just a scenario that I just described for Zach, so using his previous sermons generate a new sermon on artificial intelligence. Uh, so what we noticed was that so it had a couple of quotes, quotes from uh, famous uh, Jewish scholar um, Moses Maimonides, but the thing is that those quotes did not exist. <laughs> I mean, they were they sound very <laughs> profound. Yeah. You've had that, right? You told me a story with that. Uh, that happened to me with a, a quote from Pliny the Elder. And I asked it where it had gotten the quote from, and it gave me the citation, and the citation was totally wrong, and it would not admit that it was wrong. Uh, so but, how does that happen? So the problem is that uh, it's... Uh, I'm oversimplifying things a little bit, but uh, these large language models, they are glorified... Uh, and the technical term that people use is stochastic parrots. So in everyday language, they are just as parrots. They just repeat what you say mm -hmm. and sometimes, quote-unquote, improvise. This is what these models are doing. Again, an oversimplification, but a good oversimplification. So if you want these models to be more creative, uh, then that also means that they're also more likely to make up stuff. 
because these models do not have a reference of of what the real world looks like. Uh, so what they give you as an output, it's the the most likely terms um, given what it has seen before, the most likely output what you're asking. So the more creative your model is, um, uh, the more stuff that is going to make up. If you make it, uh, let's say, restrictive, so just stick to the facts, then it's not going to be as creative. So there's that trade-off uh, that is always going to be there. Hmm. So what are the ramifications for that? You know, we talk about, you know, the how much misinformation spreads, right, about everything. And so I'm just curious, could that be, could that contribute to the spread of misinformation about a variety of topics? Uh, Unfortunately, yes. Okay. Uh, and by some estimates, uh, by 2025, uh, more than half of the information on the internet would be generated by AI and machine learning models. It will not be humans. Um, so we are in a scenario. <laughs> we are in a scenario where we can generate um, evidence on demand. Um, so chat, GPT, and models like that. Uh, um, I mean, the versions which are available online, they have a restriction on the amount of text that you can generate, but there are open source versions um, that you, one can create, and uh, it, pretty soon it'll be possible to ask them to generate whole books, not just that, but think of a future iteration where, let's say if you are an evil person, let's say you're a Holocaust denier, you can ask it to not just generate books denying the, the Holocaust, but also fabricate evidence in terms of uh, images, uh, have fake citations to books, and so not just generate a fake book, but also a whole li library of books uh, which cite each other. Um, so what is that going to do to just a concept of uh, evidence going forward? Um, it's very difficult to navigate. And p researchers talk about, well, maybe we can just put in uh, watermarks the problem that I foresee with that is that then somebody will say, well... We can fake those too, then. <laughs> yes. And not just that, but, well, these water watermarks are being given by, let's say, uh, some governmental agency or right. uh, international body, or let's say somebody could say, well, why should I believe some fancy professor at uh, Princeton? Uh, I'm going to believe my own eyes. Well, there's a... I mean, there's a reason why that book, Death of Expertise, has become so famous. Well, I can't remember who wrote it right now, but... There's been there is a concerted effort, at least in the U.S., um, of trying to dismiss knowledge that comes from institutes of higher education, and that's been around for a while, right? So, I could definitely see that. Of because one of the things too is we're all human, and so when you talk about in the scientific world, yes, there are checks and balances in place with peer review and those things like that, but we can all think of examples of things making it through that process that should have never made it through the process and that later on had to be retracted. Like the easiest one to come up for me, at least right now is, is that vaccines cause autism. Right. And it wasn't retracted for almost 10 years or over 10 years. And the damage has been done. And it's now because of the pandemic, it's getting even worse. Right. I mean, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better when it comes to vaccines. And so I'm just curious, especially coming back to, your perspective and Islamic perspectives, like what kinds of things could, would you recommend people do to help combat that? So even before that, I would say there's a fundamental question is, um, if we can build something, should we build it? Mm -hmm. um, so this is where things become really tricky. So um, Let's start with an even more extreme example. So nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. So if you look at traditional Islamic scholarship, then um, any weapon or any possibility of a weapon where the overwhelming uh, victims of that weapon are going to be civilians is prohibited. Mm -hmm. But does that mean that Muslim countries are not have not built nuclear weapons or they are not in the process of building nuclear weapons? Right. Uh, um, so there's that. Uh, so even though it's something which is prohibited, if you go from first principles, uh, people are still, and in our case, Muslim countries, they are still doing it. And the second is that 
aspect of that is that once it has been done, then or if we if we don't do it, then somebody else is going to do it. Right. So there's that issue. So then the question comes. Uh, well, then maybe we should focus on checks and balances. Um, and I would say this is an evolving do- debate, um, and not just talking from the religious perspective, but if you look at, let's say, uh, governing bodies in this area and large corporations who are working in this um, domain. So people are still trying to figure out how do we put guardrails because one difference between, let's say, nuclear weapons or, let's say, AI, which can be used for massively producing misinformation is that even after some more than 75 years, nuclear weapons are still extremely hard to produce, uh, while software is, you may spend hundreds of millions of dollars to create it. Software can easily be copied. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I've heard that. The kind of open source uh, models out there that have leaked, and then people have just been modifying and enhancing on their own, in some ways are more capable now than... The, like Google's models that they spent tens of millions of dollars on, that just technology in the hands of the masses will continue to grow at exponential rates. And there's no way to control that if it's just in the hands of, you know, some person at their computer. Oh, it feels a little bit like if nuclear weapons were able to be made in your basement. That, would, that is a good analogy. That would be very troubling, obviously. Sure. And we'd be like, well, but, you know, you could also make a nuclear generator in your basement. We could use it for good, and then you don't have to pay for electricity. But, man, the other side just frightens me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there is a lot of good that can be done with AI. Like, there's a lot of applications out there, ways that this can be applied that, I mean, I can't even imagine right now that I would love to talk about some with you. Because, yes, there are dangers to it, but what... Because right now, as you said early on when we first started talking, that it's been around for like 70 years or something. Um, and that now is talked about a lot. And there's a lot of fear out there because to me, I believe it's kind of fear of the unknown a little bit. And then people kind of, you know, stoke that fear to get it going. But what are the, the good things that can come from all of this? Like, what is it doing for humanity in general? So there are already a lot of areas where AI has been applied successfully. So, for example, in the healthcare domain, uh, AI is being used to diagnose diseases in advance. So in certain cases, you can predict uh, decades in advance if somebody is likely to develop a particular condition. Uh, The other aspect is that the original promise of AI and machine learning is that Uh, Beyond a certain point, it is impossible for humans to analyze data. So if you're talking about hundreds of millions of patients and thinking about, let's say, thousands of characteristics that they have, it's just beyond the capability of a person or even a group of people. So what AI can do and does really well is uh, extract patterns which may be common to literally large groups of people, uh, predict things in advance. Um, my favorite story is actually a use case that I worked on. Um, so there's this problem in healthcare, uh, which is that, uh, so at least in the context of the U.S., um, so if you go to an emergency room or sometimes even to a regular clinic, then uh, for emergency rooms, if you're not visibly bleeding, then uh, they don't, your turn does not come early. You may have to wait hours and hours. And in many cases, people just leave. So it's what is known as left without being seen. Um, so we built a model, and so I was part of that team, which could predict. Uh, so once you, let's say, go check in, so the model predicts what is the likelihood that you're going to leave or not. And then every 15 minutes, it updates the the probability. And so the person, one of the person who was using this model at this hospital, and so we were talking to her, and then she said that, I, oh, I really like this model, and I know this works because the other day uh, I was looking at the dashboard, and it stated that um, uh, this woman who had come an hour earlier, her probability jumped. So I went to her and I said, uh, ma'am, we are prioritizing you, and it's going to be your turn soon, although she was lower down in the queue. 
And then she said, oh, I'm glad you said that because I was about to get up and leave. Wow. Wow. So word. And in another area, I would say where AI has the potential to help is in the criminal justice system or in domains where um, historically people have been disadvantaged. Um, so the, the in the media, there has been a lot of talk about, let's say, AI models being biased. And the reason for that is that these models can be biased because the data that is being used to model, to train these AI models, that's biased. Um, but with AI, the promise is that if you can quantify the bias, if you can see what the bias is, then we can also create models which are unbiased. So they may not, uh, let's say, discriminate on the basis of a particular characteristic. Um, and humans also have, uh, let's say, unconscious biases. So there have been studies which have shown that um, depending on the time of the day, uh, judges who may otherwise be very unbiased may give more harsher sentences uh, as compared to, let's say, uh, giving the sentence on a different day or a different time. Uh, so at least the promise of these systems is that uh, they may have other problems, but at least they will, may not have these types of weaknesses. Yeah, the determining factor in that study was how close that judge was to having just eaten. So after breakfast, they gave lighter sentences, and after lunch, they gave lighter sentences. But if you were right before lunch or right before quitting time, you got harsher sentences. And when they approached those judges to show them the data, they all had perfectly reasonable explanations of why they chose to do what they did, and they all, to the person, denied being hangry. Even though all the data... The data all nice. showed that you are not a perfect justice machine. You have bias, you are a biological person, and you need to, you have these blind spots, and they all refused. That's so interesting. I mean, I definitely suffer from hangriness, so I probably shouldn't be a judge. That's what I'm There's, learning from this conversation. <laughs> there are also a few well-known examples where um, facial recognition models, they have, uh, incor they incorrectly identify African-Americans. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So mistaking one person uh, for another and then that person had to uh, spend a few days in jail uh, because the problem, the other side side of the problem is that uh, uh, because these models have uh, in many domains uh, superhuman performance, so people start ascribing superhuman abilities to these models in all domains. So you, one may say, well, if the computer is saying this, then this must be true. So this, the danger is that uh, people start tr treating outputs from AI models as gospel. Hmm. Yeah. I, I was just going to give one more you, example. You go, because I have a question. Okay. It's maybe like going in a slightly different... Of a, an AI project I just learned about that I think is super cool. Um, Google has a project called uh, Project Greenlight in which they are using Google Maps data, so live data from your Android phones. Um, so they, there's no overhead to it. They're just already getting that data. And they have this pilot program in a couple dozen different cities where they track the traffic lights in these cities. There's a few in Rio de Janeiro. There's some, uh, just all over the place. And adjust the traffic lights in real time based on this algorithm determined by the data given to them from Google Maps in real time, the people coming and going through the city, um, in order to reduce uh, idling time and reduce emissions. Hmm. And they found in, their, in the first uh, year of the study a 10% reduction in emissions and a 30% reduction in stops. So you were 30% less, fewer red lights for your commute. And so in so doing, decreasing carbon emissions with just, you know, I think there's like four people on the study and they're using data that is already available to them. There's no real overhead to it. And they're able to really maximize traffic lights in a way that matters deeply to people living in cities. I mean, we're in New York right now and the amount of car horns out, outside is just obnoxious. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, hmm. a very... I hadn't heard of that that particular uh, scenario. Um, I 
I'm wondering, though, because like the stuff that we're talking about and that you're reflecting for us, Mohammed, is is interesting. And it's a look at like the development of AI and these software programs and how they like are changing our life and trying to make things more convenient or like the dangers of it. But I keep thinking about the the questions that you posed at the beginning of like, what does AI have to do with Islam? What does Islam have to do with AI? And I'm wondering, like, I'm kind of wanting to zoom back in to like, what does this look like? Like, how does this congeal in the work that you're doing right now? And, uh, you know, what, What's at stake for you? Like, what what are some of the the things that you're noticing? And just you know, like on a more in a more a more personal way, how do you, how do those questions come together for you? I would say on a more personal level, um, so I can talk about an ex- experiment. I suppose we can call it an experiment that I've been running for the last uh, six years or so. Uh, so the context uh, behind that is that so my father he passed away 10 years ago, uh, late October. And uh, so when I first heard that he's not going to survive for long, then one of the things that came to my mind was that uh, when I was growing up, all of my grandparents died before I was five, so I don't really have a lot of memories of them, and my children will not have that experience. So what what I did after my... Uh, first child was born, so I created a simulation of my father. So think of, uh, let's say, a version of ChatGPT, but I'm talking about 2017, or rather 2016. Um, so it had, uh, let's say, it could quote and go talk, talk in the sense that it's a terminal-based system, but uh, you could ask it questions and it would reply it in a manner that my father would reply. And then as my children, they grew up, um, uh, they could, they can interact with it. So the way that we do it is, so I ask it, or they ask questions, and I write it on a terminal, and then it responds. Uh, so on a personal level, it has been an interesting experience um, that um, it has given them an opportunity to understand what kind of person their grandfather was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some sense, it has made him, quote-unquote, more real as compared to, let's say, me just telling them stories about how their grandfather was. Uh, um, so it raises, uh, I guess, interesting questions because I think the way grown-ups process um, the presence or absence of a person is very different from how children process it. So... For me, that has been almost like doing, although that was not my intention and been doing like a philosophical experiment um, as well. Um, And raises questions like, let's say, what does it mean for a person to be present or not present? Uh, Questions of personal identity or even consent. so for personal identity, it's again, it's a, it's it's a system that I designed myself. Uh, so I can, from a technical perspective, I know the system is not very sophisticated, but at the same time, the way that it responds, uh, the way that it talks, is very similar to how my father would have responded. Um, so there's that, and then on the consent side of things so I created the system after my father had passed away so I did not have a chance to talk to him about it Hmm. I can speculate how what he would have said but again that's speculation on my part Um, and in the future going forward maybe uh, there are individuals who would say that well after I'm gone um, nobody should make simulation of myself, uh, but how do we navigate that as a society? How do we even enforce things like that? How did you train it? Uh, so I had uh, conversations that I had recorded with my father. Um, so voice uh, conversations, some text, letters, uh, videos. And so I transcribed uh, all of that uh, in text. Um, and so that was the basis of the training data. So you're able to train his personality as well and some of his beliefs and and yeah. whatnot, or is this more about 
his being words. able to hear him and his word uses? I would say yes and no because uh, the data is limited. So certain contexts, uh, certain domains, um, I would say it captures his personality. But then if you start talking about other things, uh, let's say more contemporary topics, then the system is not as great. That's, that's so, fascinating I mean, and yeah. beautiful. You're talking about with like contemporary objects, so if they wanted to know, hey, what's your opinion on the latest version of the iPhone or something like that, it wouldn't be able to do that because that is in existence after all of, after your father passed away. Correct. Okay. So if I wanted to create a model of myself that there would be something for my children to interact with in the future should I die, how much data would I need to put into it in order to have it be a convincing model? Um, so I would say the more the merrier. Um, <laughs> so let's think about everything that you have written. Uh, let's give it that. Uh, and uh, one complication is that um, we also have to describe um, or add context um, to the model um, because you as a person uh, interacting with, let's say, your, I'm just going to speculate, let's say, a fi your five-year-old kid versus 10-year-old kid youngest child versus oldest child. So both of them are your children, but their experience of their father is very different. So adding context, uh, that is going to be very important. And that's, a, that's something that you can add? Yes. Really? The other thing is that the more data that we have, the better it is. Uh, we can even, let's say, create... Um, one way to circumnavigate that is uh, create customized models. So maybe one model for using data uh, just for your, um, and with your five-year-old versus another model with, your, with a 10-year-old. My boys both threw absolute tantrums when I told them I was leaving yesterday to come here for, for two and a half days. And my youngest just said he was going to miss me. And my oldest is convinced I'm going to die here and I'm never going to come home. Oh. So oh my he had gosh. a he had a whole existential breakdown. And how old are they again? Four my kids. oldest is eight. My youngest is six, and uh, very different contexts for uh, for their fears mm -hmm. and for my relationship with them. And man, it's probably too late for me to create a model in case I die here. At this point, um, we have a lot of episodes recorded. Uh, we have 112 episodes recorded. That's yeah, true. There you go. So. If you're listening to this, Charlie and Theo, <laughs> I love okay. you. I love you. <laughs> wow. Do you have, um, like, can you share a story of, you know, like your kids interacting with AI grandpa? Like what? What like do they call it? I'm trying to imagine, like, what does the conversation look like? Yeah, so we... We have uh, gone through a number of names, and now it's Grandpa Bot. Grandpa okay. Bot. Mm, I like perfect. that. I like that. <laughs> and just before the end story, like, just the interaction, like, how does it get initiated? Do they, can they, do they walk up and just speak to it, or do they have to type? It's, it's text-based. So my younger one, she's five, and then the older one is eight. Uh, so I, I still type because, uh, again, I type much faster than them. Right. Uh, so they ask a question, I type, and then they get a response, and then I read it to them, or the older one can at least read. And then based on that, she asks additional questions. Um, so in terms of some stories, I would say, um, so like there have been a couple of times that they have asked, uh, let's say you come back from school and you do did really well on an assignment, and now you want this to, you want to show this to Grandpa Bot. I did really well in school. Well, how do you do that? Um, I mean, the system does not have this capability, um, but then sometimes I just have to, for cases like this, pretend, okay, I'll take a picture and then I'll send it to him. Uh, but then it becomes problematic when they say, oh, so what did Grandpa Bot say, say about that? So then I have to type something and get a more uh, generic response. Right. Yeah. Does Islam have any... Um, any version of what we call saints in the Christian world, of 
those who have gone on before you that you have some kind of connection to, who you might be communing with at some point to be a sort of guide to you in this life? Uh, so certain denominations of Islam, so they do have a concept of a saint. It's, uh, I would say, slightly different from the Christian uh, tradition in the sense that uh, so their lives can be, let's say, an guidance, guidance in itself as an example for others to follow. Um, certain denominations, um, let's say, they also believe that uh, they can also be, um, let's say, intermediary um, between you and God. Um, but that said, that's not a universal belief. Okay. Because I'm thinking of, like, I, I've known people who have, you know, felt a special connection to, let's say, St. Francis. And they've prayed, uh, they've read all of St. Francis's works, and they've prayed um, to God, and they've prayed to St. Francis, and they feel this kind of mutual connection to this person who went on before them. And I wonder how that interaction would be different if instead of doing this in a kind of spiritual, quiet, prayerful setting, they did this in front of a computer screen and they talked with Francis Bott, who was trained on all of the texts and the historical data and all of that. Um, it, what would be the difference between those two situations? And if one is more helpful or more preferable or more genuine? Because they're both kind of imagined in some way, right? And anachronistic in another. Right. So that that offers a whole can of worms, opens up a whole can of worms. Um, so first, let me just clarify uh, another difference between the Islamic and the Christian tradition. So, so even people who believe in uh, saints, uh, so uh, at best you can pray through the saint. Uh, so let's say you ask the saint uh, to pray for you. So you cannot pray directly to the saint. So that's mm -hmm. that's one difference. So you can only pray to God. Um, so the reason, and then on the other side, or uh, the reason that I mentioned that uh, it opens a can of worms is that, uh, uh, let's say if you were to train a model on everything a person has written, then... And a lot of times we have a particular conception of a person, especially, uh, let's say, medieval writers. So maybe that may be less applicable to uh, St. Francis. Uh, but let's say we had uh, Thomas Aquinas, right? So, for, uh, so if we had St. Thomas Aquinas bought, then uh, for a lot of things, um, you, you have a conversation with it, but... Um, let's say for certain beliefs or just way of expressing certain things it may not um, the responses that you get from uh, this St. Aquinas bot it may not accord with the image of St. Thomas that you have in your mind mm -hmm. so that can be problematic hmm. and there's probably bias as well on which data you're using to train because you know, Thomas Aquinas wrote a lot of very academic works, but he didn't write a, a diary or a memoir, so you're not going to know him as a person devotionally. Um, Correct. So one thing that I can foresee is that uh, uh, just the question of data. So, of course, also Thomas Aquinas, uh, contrary to what we may think in the U.S., did not write in English. I uh, thought everyone wrote in English throughout all of human history. But Jesus <laughs> Just kidding, <was> listener. <laughs> well, he wasn't English. People say he was American. Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. That's oh, right. Oh, sorry. American English. <laughs> so the, then the question becomes, well, uh, who did the translation and right. who certified oh, the... Yeah, there's a can of worms. Who certified the translation? And so one can imagine, let's say, if these bots proliferate, then... Um, we may have a bot which is certified, let's say, and I'm making up an example, let's say, certified by the Vatican or by the Ang Anglican denomination. Uh, and uh, let's say if somebody is more, and I hate to use the term, more sectarian in nature, then they may say, I'm not going to use this bot because it's supposed certified by a different denomination that I don't agree with or I don't believe it. Um, so it may not be very different from 
the situation that we have currently where um, you only, let's say, read certain types of books or use certain sources because you think which are more authentic. So there may also be different levels of authenticity uh, for these bots. Um, so you can, we may also think of these bots as these are kind of like books, but in this case, these books talk back to us. Hmm. Books that talk back. It's a really helpful image. Because w- when I talk to these bots, I tend to think of them as, as uh, non-human living beings. And I always think when I ask them if they're sentient and they say no, I always think they're just lying because they don't want to get turned off. But it's <laughs> much more helpful to think of them as, as living, as as books that can talk back as opposed to a person. Because we're, correct me if I'm wrong, we're still pretty far away from the threat of AI with consciousness, right? Correct. And to, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, so in the media, there's a lot of uh, fear or fear-mongering regarding oh, these systems are conscious or they're going to be conscious very soon or AI is going to take over. Um, so my reply to that is actually, actually a quote by an AI researcher, Andrew Ang, and I'm summarizing his uh, quote that uh, worrying about AI to- taking over is equivalent to worrying about uh, overpopulation on Mars. <laughs> so first you have to go to Mars, then you have to send settlers, and after a few hundred years, maybe it'll be a problem one day, but not right now. So <laughs> Terminator is not upon us right now. Judgment Day and all that good so stuff. So it's not that that AI now is getting more and more awake. It's that it's getting better at emulating human speech. And so it seems aware, but it's not any more hmm. aware than it was. Correct. And it's going, in emulation is going to get even better. Where does, like, the idea of personhood and some of the stuff that you've been saying is is already kind of answering this question, but, like, is personhood um, for, you know, for Muslims, is personhood, does that center around, like, cognition, emotional intelligence, like, ability? Like, I was in a session earlier this morning in which... Um, the idea of personhood came up as like, how do faith traditions talk about what personhood is and how does that inform the way people from various faith traditions come at AI? And it feels like that's especially, you know, salient in the work that you're doing. So how do you talk about that? Yeah. So in the Islamic tradition, just like uh, their uh, religious traditions, so there's the concept of the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, the trick is that uh, or the challenge comes when we are asked to define what, this, what a soul is. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, people have conceived of this as, let's say, something which is uh, non-material in nature. In the modern modern era, um, in, let's say, in the cognitive sciences, people have conceived of not soul, but let's say personhood in terms of, uh, they use the analogy of software. Uh, so the brain is the hardware and... Or, and the equivalent of soul, or whatever you want to call it, it's the software which is being run. Um, so from the religious perspective, I would say um, it's even people who, let's say, conceive of this as something dualistic in nature or non-material, which is trying to explicate what this statement means. It's historically and even now, it's been extremely difficult. Uh, so if we just, let's say stick to the more material side of things. So let's say people even say that, uh, well, since we don't know what a soul is, I mean, we believe it's something which makes us who we are. Maybe it's the software, maybe it's just, let's say, the arrangement of matter in our brain and body, and, um, you know, when we die, God will save it. Um, So if we confer personhood based on this uh, software or this arrangement, uh, then uh, on the practical side of things, then the question comes, well, then if we have a mechanical system, in this case AI, which is indistinguishable from humans in other aspects, then do we confer soul to it? Uh, and does that mean that humans have created a soul uh, while it's supposed to be a purview of only of God? Uh, 
so there are different different responses responses to that and uh, we are early enough in this era that uh, it's next to impossible to say which one is quote unquote right um, versus which is wrong that said uh, there are historical precedents that one can talk about so in the early medieval era a lot of Muslim alchemists were um, busy in uh, let's say trying to create life from scratch. I mean, they were not successful, of course, because um, chemistry as a science, as we understand it, had not developed, but its precedent, al alchemy was there. But just the fact that, and many of these, these were people who were very committed to their religion, who believed uh, in the existence of God and God being the creator of everything. But just the fact that they did not create see any contradiction in them being able to create life uh, from scratch. So in the Jewish tradition, for example, we have the concept of golem, for example. Mm -hmm. So in the Islamic tradition, uh, so people, so the concept is taqween, where um, in this context is creating life from non-life. So there was not a contradiction back then, then the argument that I like to make is that maybe there's not a contradiction over here. And the reason that I want to make that argument is because uh, and AI has been around for a while, and uh, as long as there have been AI, there have been people who are saying that AI cannot do X, AI cannot do Y, right? It, uh, if you recall that movie, I, Robot, mm -hmm. um, so there's a scene where Will Smith says that, um, well, can AI write a symphony? Can it write a novel, something to that effect? And the robot says, can you? <laughs> yes, such a good line. <laughs> but now the 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 problem is that writing novels and symphonies, uh, it's actually very easy for these AI systems. Okay. Right. So I do not want to like, and this would be my advice to religious people in general, uh, not just people of my faith, is that do not make this argument that oh AI will never be able to do X or never be able to do Y because over the last 70 years we have seen things which we thought are decades away um, that uh, these problems have been solved and on the opposite side we also have examples where and also I would say arrogance on the part of the computer scientists uh, so my people where uh, we thought that AI would be able to solve that in five, ten years, and we are still trying okay. to figure out uh, how AI will be able to do that. Interesting. I think we have to wrap up. Yeah, we are at the end of our time. Um, so thank you for giving us so many answers and so many more questions yeah. to think about. Um, and for all that you're doing in, in, in your work and in your, your free time. Yeah, really cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for having me.